All right, hello there. My name is Sarah Dixon. Welcome to the podcast. And technically, since I have total control of what you hear for the next 10 minutes, I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to show you just how cool string orchestral music can actually be if they give the melody to somebody other than the violins, preferably the violas. I just thought I'd show you what that sounded like. And hopefully the music would also distract you from what I'm saying, because it's probably gonna be a little rough, not gonna lie. But then it ended up distracting me, so I had to scrap it, but I'll probably include it at the end. You'll like it, It's, it's really cool. It's called the Patron Saint Saint of Ballyverney, I think. It's so dope. It's like beautiful. And you're like, wow, this is really cool. And then all of a sudden it was all Pirates of the Caribbean on you. It's amazing. Anyway, I guess we should discuss what you actually came here for. So we'll be going over Sylvia. I spell. Is it Sylvia or is there actually an L there? Have I been Hmm, I have to delete this. That sounds really stupid. I think that's just a typo. Sylvia Plath's 1960 Ariel poem. Let's begin. So Ariel was written, this piece was written um, on October 27th of 1962, which would have been Sylvia Plath's 30th birthday and was actually about four months before she committed suicide. She suffered severely from depression, and this is actually probably one of her happier poems. And the reason that it's important, like when it was written is important, is because usually people with depression, um, usually before they do end up killing themselves, they do have this one last hope of for happiness, if that makes sense. I tried to do more research on it, but for obvious reasons, I wasn't quite getting stuff, and I wasn't really sure I wanted that history on my school Chromebook. And I got a bunch of like websites of trying to offer concern. So I wasn't really able to do much research on what this stage is called, but that's just part of context, (laughs) which is really important because in this poem, she's basically riding a horse to the afterlife, sort of, or to the final destination of happiness. She's leaving this current life. So this is depicting her the final moments of her life. And I truly believe that she wrote this for herself. Like, the audience and purpose is for herself. It was not necessarily written to anyone in particular. I think most of her writings was her way of coping, her way of trying to figure things out, life out. And that this was the purpose was to sort of convey what she was going through in a sense, like her mindset, where she was coming from, how she truly wasn't all that depressing, all everything's dark, like we assume, but she truly did also like yearn for happiness, just like the next person. And that sort of gives into the theme of mortality and transcendence. For Tone, she definitely had some tone changes in the beginning she starts out in the darkness and she comes out of that sort of like how she wanted to genuinely find happiness she sort of 
but she also did not have control. And that becomes clear, and I'll come back to that in a moment. And it's also, hmm, let me get my thoughts together. I, yeah, so she also shows how she was like striving to get over her depression. And in the beginning, it's like really sad and suppressed, but she tries to break through. And that's, that's the important part of this. And that's where the tone shift is. She decides towards the end, let's see, where is it? And Sansa 9, okay, actually, I'll back up a second. This entire passage, she has not had control. She is, in Sansa 3, of the neck I cannot reach, uh, cannot catch. Um, 6, hauls me through the air, hauls. Like, she was not going by force. She was being dragged along. But then by Sansa 9, melts in the wall, and I am the arrow. Like, she finally sort of gains control. And where she goes... But it's, it may not be what society, what her destination that she had control over, she finally got control over where she was going. Society may not agree with that, so like, but I think she did come to terms with her decision, if that makes any sense. And she definitely, because tone and mood go hand in hand, and she definitely, she definitely plays with the reader a bit. Um, the mood, I say, I think, I think if you could relate to her you'll probably be able to understand it better but if you're a naturally optimistic person you're gonna look at this and think that it's is super depressing and she uses words that sort of just toy with the reader's emotions that's on purpose i think there is a like atmosphere of like uneasiness in the reader they're not really sure if it's a good thing a bad thing um she uses dark imagery it's part of style in five it gives us a, a very ominous feeling she says in stanza five black sweet blood mouthfuls like she could have just said sweet mouthfuls but she choosing to use the word blood in with that just that gives off some very ominous feelings it sets a very uneasy mood and that's some that's some dark imagery right there that she uses so her style and structure it's very iconic you could say it's oh i'm trying to find the right word i know there's one that's way better and more scholarly than just iconic but it is very sylvia plath if you know what i mean she's used in gym and just about every single one of the pieces that we have read um there's a bunch of metaphors and it's her own type of rhyming. So let's break it down a bit more, I guess. So there's 10 stanzas. Each one has three lines. And then there's an additional line at the bottom. The She uses a lot of enjambment. So what that does, it's where the line, it, it breaks at a point that does not feel natural in a sense. And she the well first this is significant for two reasons what she could be why she used enjambment could have there's probably two reasons so first of all she's what the story itself is describing she's describing her on a horse riding that she cannot control and using enjambment makes the author feel i mean the not the author makes the reader feel out of breath themselves like they too cannot quite keep up because oh I wish I could pause this. But it leaves the reader out of breath too. They have to keep on reading. 
And part of it is also that her thoughts are not defined or confined to lines. Like in personally, when I think of poetry, I think of strictly just lines and then they all rhyme. That's how I imagine it. But hers is definitely not that. If I were to read it, let's say, let's go to stanza two. God's lioness, how one we grow, pivot of heels and knees. The furrow splits and passes, sister to the brown arc of the neck I cannot catch. When, if you were to read it, it reads like this. God's lioness, how one we grow, pivot of heels and knees. The furrow splits and passes, sister to the brown arc of the neck I cannot catch. It makes no sense. But when we listen to a recording of her, the actual author, reading this, we heard when we were supposed to break, what type of tones you were supposed to use. And that adds another level of depth and complexity to the poem. It's no longer just confined to simple lines. And I think this is personally probably the first time I've actually really looked at poetry this complex. She uses like metaphors and internal rhyming. So stanza one, stasis and darkness, then the substanceless blue, poor of tour and distances. The darkness, substanceless distances, um, poor of tour, that's some internal rhyming right there. And what that does is, again, to keep it moving forward, to keep the fast pace, like when you're riding a horse, it's a fast pace. Okay, I've been recording these, but I'm not really sure if they're being uploaded in the correct order. So whenever you hear me saying this, I, I apologize. <laughs> but, um, so Ariel was the name of Sylvia Plath's childhood horse. And not only that, but in Hebrew, I can't even begin to pronounce that name, but the Hebrew word for, that literally translates to Lion of God, the Roman version of that is Ariel, like in English, it is Ariel, meaning God's lioness. And that's definitely 100% not a coincidence that in the second stanza begins with God's lioness. Is this her? Is this some sort of theme of feminism, individuality, expressionism, power? Is this referring to the horse, the sheer power of the horse, how God is a supernatural being that controls life and the horse is God's lioness, meaning that the horse is guiding her, controlling it, and she does not hold the reins. She's barely holding on. Um, it's not clearly stated, but it could be somewhere along those lines.